Can you hear it with your ears? Can you see it with your eyes? Can you feel it wiggling between your quivering thighs? That thing, that thing, that thing with James. Once every millennium, something will come along. When you feel it, you will know it because it's coming on strong. That thing, that thing, that thing with James. Sit back, relax, deep breaths, no stress. Let me come inside your mind. I promise you it won't take long. The change will happen soon. You will feel something so special growing deep within you. That thing, that thing, that thing with James. That thing, that thing, that thing with James. That's me. Welcome to That Thing with James. I'm your host, James. And this is the super sweet Halloween special. Well, for this episode, I am going to read to you some Edgar Allan Poe. And I am going to not just read any Edgar Allan Poe, but I'm going to read some Poe that I personally have never read. So this shall be interesting. Uh, let's start off. Oh, let's start off first with some quick business before I get into it, before I forget it. I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash that thing with James, and I invite you to become a patron, uh, a member of the Black Diamond Exclusive Club. That's what I call my, my Patreon. Every week I put out one extra episode, and you can access it by becoming a member for just $5 for a whole month, whole month, be it anywhere from 28 to 31 days, however many days are in the month, just for five bucks, you can get access to each new bonus episode that comes out, plus all of the back catalog of previously recorded and released bonus episodes. So if you're not already, I implore you, Become a patron at patreon.com slash that thing with James. And for those of you who already are patrons, thank you so much for your support. And if you're not, I could use your support. Uh, I could use uh, <laughs> I could use some kind of uh, uh, affirmation here to keep keep this show going. It's uh it's been a little rough lately, but I think I might talk about that more in the bonus episode this week. But for now, for now. We're going to be doing Edgar Allan Poe's stuff. Also, uh, if you have a story or subject you would like me to share on the show, um, or if you have any business inquiries, if you want to be a guest, if you want me as a guest, send me an email at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. Also, uh, you could, if you wanted, slide into my DMs. on I'm on Instagram Twitter and TikTok. My handle is at James J. Asher. And I have a subreddit, 
r slash that thing with James. Um, links and all that shit will be in the description for this episode. So business is done. Let's get on with this show. Um, uh, before I get into reading these stories, a uh, good friend of the show, Jaime, asked me a question that I totally forgot about until just now. But it was a good question, and it's perfect for a Halloween episode. He wanted to know, why is it um, tradition to take off your hat when you go to a cemetery? Now, I think it's probably the same probably the same thing with like how you're supposed to take off your hat to I don't know say the pledge of allegiance or take off your hat when you sit down at a table with somebody or take off your hat to someone respectable so i'm sure this all comes back to the main act of removing your hat as a sign of respect so let's look up why rem- remove hat at cemetery. Let's see here. Okay, so this is first result. Etiquette states that hats can be worn outdoors before and after the funeral, with a few exceptions. Uh, these few exceptions I think of, like, say, a widow there with a black hat and a veil over her face. Um, you'd be able to keep a hat on there, but usually uh, you remove the hat at a gravesite service as a sign of respect to the pastor or minister, and more importantly, as a sign of respect to the deceased and the family of the deceased. So yeah, that makes sense. So why is removing your hat in general an act of respect? Let's see. This is at emilypost.com, title or headline, hats off, hat etiquette for everyone. Um, Men's hats etiquette can be left on. I'm looking for the history here. Tell me there's history. No, these are just times when you should or should not wear a hat. Um, Maybe Reddit has something here. Here's a link. Bear with me. It's The internet's been a little slow lately. Okay. Uh, This is from Starfighter89. Why is it rude to wear a hat at a funeral? So me and my friend got in a very heated discussion because I wore a hat to a cemetery and a live funeral happened to occur there. It was a beanie because I was cold. Uh, He says that it is extremely rude, yet he can't tell me why. If someone can't state why something is rude, in my opinion, it is not rude. I do not think that it is respectful in any way to, or disrespectful in any way to wear a hat in a cemetery. And I'm Jewish, so if anything, it would be respectful to my religion to cover my head in a holy place. Um, let's see. There's another link here to that Emily post website. So mm, I don't know. I, I, I guess it's just, it goes back to some old traditions for different types of cultures. So I guess if you're Jewish, you'll be wearing your yarmulke. That's how I say yarmulke because it's spelled yarmulke. Um, well, Jaime, fuck, I don't know, man. <laughs> I didn't put enough effort into searching this. I'm sure there's a big um, 
I, I'm sure there's research on this, and it's probably an anthropological study of just various cultures and the etiquettes they hold. So basically, you take off a hat at a cemetery because because of reasons most traditional practices, which is, well, we don't really know how this started or why, but it's just what we've always done. It's what I was taught, so I guess it's the right thing to do. And if you don't do it, then you're being insulting and rude. That's the way so much tradition works. Now, when it comes to something like, say, halal or kosher foods, that I feel is, I mean, that is a traditional thing, but I feel it is rooted. And there are a lot of traditional things that are rooted, say, uh, for reasons of health and safety. Um, so when it comes to um, halal and kosher, I believe, I believe, um, it probably goes back to, uh, it's a means of keeping from getting ill from eating food. It's a, it's a, just these old religious practices are actually more like sort of, um, health, health practices, uh, you know, food hygiene practices, keeping your shit from going bad, knowing what not to eat or, or when not to eat certain things like shellfish, uh, trying to avoid you, for, keep you from getting poisoned or perhaps from even spreading disease. So um, when it comes to hat, I'm not entirely sure. Um, it probably goes back to the Middle Ages, though, if I had to guess, because, you know, like the salute and everything has to do with lifting the visor on your helmet. And then uh, there's all sorts of like weird, like Puritan laws about how what kind of hat you can wear and like how your hair is cut. Like you're not supposed to have your hair cut um, or you're not supposed to wear your hair longer than the top of your ears because criminals back in like um, early settled Puritan settled America colonies. Um, like if you're a thief or something, they would basically like snip off the top of your ear and um, they need, you know, they demanded all men wear their hair. If I'm remembering this correctly, all men are supposed to wear their hair above their ears because if it's longer, then you might be hiding the fact that your ear has been snipped at the top. And uh, so don't, it's basically like, well, if you haven't done anything wrong, then you shouldn't have anything to hide. You know, that old cop mentality, very Puritan, very, uh, slave owning mentality. Um, so I'm sure the hat thing, it probably, it probably has something to do with some, just some weird arbitrary fucking rules Europeans came up with. Um, Non-Semitic Europeans came up with in the middle ages, if I had to guess. Um, and it's just kept up that way, you know? So, oh Yeah. Pumpkin head, 
I, I, I heard a podcast a while back about pumpkin head and that's something my voice called people with like a big head you know like old alcoholics how their fucking head swells up especially men you know the head just they get fat fucking head or big head i like to call them a fat head i've also heard a, a couple other words for someone with a big ass head um one is supposedly from what i hear a um, essex local a phrase it's called a sniper's dream get it because it's an easy target because you got a big ass head but pumpkin head is a thing that um, puritan uh settler colonial motherfuckers used to be called because they would use you know a pumpkin you know cut it in half and put it on top of your head so you can measure where to cut. So you get that bowl cut. So that's why you see old Puritans with bowl cuts in the, you know, the depictions of how they're depicted. Um, because they would wear like a, a cut in half, you know, horizontally cut in half pumpkin emptied on top of their head as a guide to make their bowl cut or pumpkin head cut. So pumpkin heads, fat heads, snipers dreams, um, all these things. I, th I think it's great. People with big fucking heads, you fat head. Oh, oh, here's another one I remember. Slap head. Oh, God, man, dude, the onomatopoeic uh, uh, value of that, of that phrase, slap head. That's specifically if someone's bald, a slap head, just a slap head. <laughs> yo, 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 slap that fat pumpkin head. Okay, <laughs> so <laughs> that's... So that's why you're supposed to take off a hat at a funeral or when you're at a cemetery in general. So thank you, Jaime. I hope that answers your question. I'm sure there's a much more precise answer, but just riffing, just riffing here off the top of my head. I bet uh, off the top of my pumpkin head, I bet that's where it comes from. Just a random old arbitrary rule that became the law of the land. So thank you, Jaime, for sending in the question. And again, uh, audience, other audience members, if you have questions or something like that, email me that thing with James at gmail.com. I need your content. I do this show by myself mostly. Uh, and it's, um, it can get a little grueling sometimes. So give me, give me something to chew on, uh, that thing with James at gmail.com. Okay. So with that, with that question answered, let's get into the Halloween stuff. Let's read some Edgar Allan Poe that I personally have never read. I have this book from um, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's certainly not my favorite edition uh, of these stories because there's some stuff that's blanked out that's like, I don't know why it's blanked out. It's bizarre, like names of streets and shit. And I don't, I don't know if it's supposed to be that way or what, but I've certainly read other editions of certain stories in here where a particular, say, street name is not blanked out. Yet in this edition, a street name is blanked out. And it's just, I don't get it. I don't get it. But it's what I have. This is my only copy of Edgar Allan Poe's Essential Tales and Poems. So, without further ado, adieu, adieu, let's start with uh, William Wilson. Okay. It starts with a quote. What say of it? 
What say conscience grim? What that theater? Wait, let me start over. I'm going cross-eyed. Let's start over. What say of it? What say conscience grim? That specter in my path. Chamberlain's Ferrondia, a Ferronida. Let me call myself, for the present, William Wilson. The fair page now lying before me need not be sullied with my real appellation. This has, al- this has been already too much an object for the scorn, for the horror, for the detestation of my race. To the uttermost regions of the globe have not the indignant winds bruited its unparalleled infamy. O oh, outcasts of all outcasts most abandoned, to the earth art thou not forever dead? To its honors, to its flowers, to its golden aspirations. And a cloud, dense, dismal, and limitless, does it not hang eternally between thy hopes and heaven? Quick note, this is my first time reading any of these, so if I make some mistakes, please forgive me. I continue. I would not, if I could, here or today, embody a record of my later years of unspeakable misery and unpardonable crime. This epoch, these years later, took unto themselves a sudden elevation in turpitude, whose origin alone it is my present purpose to assign. Men usually grow base by degrees. From me, In an instant, all virtue dropped bodily as a mantle. From the comparatively trivial wickedness I passed, with the stride of a giant, into more than the enormities of an Ella Gabalus. What chance, what one evening brought this evil thing to pass, bear with the while I relate. Death approaches, and the shadow which foreruns him has thrown a softening influence over my spirit. And long, I long in passing through the dim valley for the symphony. I had nearly said for the pity of my fellow men, I would fain have them believe that I have been in some measure the slave of circumstances beyond human control. I would wish them to seek out for me, in the details I am about to give, some little oasis of fatality amid a wilderness of error. I would have them allow what they cannot refrain from allowing, that although temptation may have erewhile existed as great as great Man was never thus, at least, tempted before, certainly never thus fell, and it is therefore he has never thus suffered. Have I not indeed been living in a dream? Am I not now dying a victim to the horror and the mystery of the wildest of all sublunary visions? I am the descendant of a race whose imaginative and easily 
excitable temperament has at all times rendered them remarkable, and in my earliest infancy I gave evidence of having fully inherited the family character. As I advanced in years, it was more strongly developed, becoming, for many reasons, a cause of serious disquietude to my friends and of positive injury to myself. I grew self-willed, addicted to the wildest caprices, and a prey to the most ungovernable passions. Weak-minded and beset with constitutional infirmities akin to my own, my parents could do but little to check the evil propensities which distinguish me. Some feeble and ill-directed efforts resulted in complete failure on their part and, of course, in total triumph of mine. Thenceforward, my voice was a household law. And at an age when few children have abandoned their leading strings, I was left to the guidance of my own will and became, in all but name, the master of my own actions." My earliest recollections of a school life are connected with a large, rambling, Elizabethan house in a misty-looking village in England, where, where were a vast number of gigantic and gnarled trees, and where all the houses were excessively ancient. In truth, it was a dreamlike and spirit-soothing place, that venerable old town." At this moment in infancy, I feel the refreshing chillness of its deeply shadowed avenues, inhale the fragrance of its thousand shrubberies, and thrill anew with undefinable delight at the deep hollow note of the church bell breaking each hour with sullen and sudden roar upon the stillness of the dusky atmosphere in which the fretted gothic steeple lay embedded and asleep. It gives me perhaps as much of pleasure as I can now in any manner experience to dwell upon minute recollections of the school and its concerns." Steeped in misery as I am, misery, alas, only too real, I shall be pardoned for seeking relief, however slight and temporary, in the weakness of a few rambling details. These, moreover, utterly trivial and even ridiculous in themselves, assume, to my fancy, adventitious importance." as connected with a period and a locality when and where I recognize the first ambiguous monitions of the destiny which afterwards so fully overshadowed me, let me then remember. The house, I have said, was all old and irregular. The grounds were extensive and a high and solid brick wall topped with a bed of mortar and broken glass encompassable, and, uh, encompassed the whole. This prison-like rampart formed the limit of our domain. Beyond it, we saw but thrice a week, once every Saturday afternoon, when, attended by two ushers, we were permitted to take brief walks in a body through some of the neighboring fields, and twice during Sunday, when we were paraded in the same formal manner to the morning and evening service in the one church in the village. Of this church, 
the principal of our school was pastor. With how deep a spirit of wonder and perplexity was I wont to regard him from our regard him from our remote pew in the gallery as with step solemn and slow he ascended the pulpit. This reverend man, with countenance so demurely benign, with robes so glossy and so clerically flowing, with wigs so minutely powdered, so rigid and so vast, could this be he who, of late, with sour visage and in snubby habiliments, administered furl and hand the draconian laws of the academy? O oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution. At an angle of the ponderous wall frowned a more ponderous gate. It was riveted and studded with iron bolts and surmounted with jagged iron spikes. What impressions of deep awe did it inspire? It was never open, save for the three periodical egressions and ingressions already mentioned. Then, in every creak of its mighty hinges, we found a plentitude of mystery, a world of matter for solemn remark or for more solemn meditation. The extensive enclosure was irregular in form, having many capacious recesses. Of these, three or four of the largest constituted the playground, it was level and covered with fine, hard gravel. I well remember it had no trees, nor benches, nor anything similar within it. Of course, it was in the rear of the house. In front lay a small parterre planted with box and other shrubs, but through this sacred division we passed only upon rare occasions indeed, such as a first advent to school or final departure thence, or perhaps when a parent or friend having called for us, we joyfully took our way home for the Christmas or midsummer holidays. But the house, how quaint, an old building was this. To me, how veritably a palace of enchantment. There really, there was really no end to its windings, to its incomprehensible subdivisions. It was difficult at any given time to say with certainty upon which of its two stories one happened to be. From each room to every other there were sure to be found three or four steps either in ascent or descent. Then the lateral branches were innumerable, inconceivable, and so returning in upon themselves that our most exact ideas in regard to the whole mansion were not very far different from those with which we pondered upon infinity." During the five years of my residence here, I was never able to ascertain with precision in what remote locality lay the little sleeping apartment assigned to myself and some eighteen or twenty other scholars. The schoolroom was the largest in the house. I could not help thinking in the world. I was, it was very long, narrow, and dismally low, with pointed gothic windows and a ceiling of oak. In a remote and terror-inspiring angle was a square enclosure of eight or ten feet comprising the sanctum, 
during hours of our principal, the Reverend Dr. Bransby. It was a solid structure with massy door sooner than opened which in the absence of the dominee we would all have the we would all willingly perished by the uh, pain forte de dure I don't know what that means. In other angles were two other similar boxes, far less reverenced indeed, but still greatly matters um, of awe. One of these was the pulpit of the classical usher, one of the English and mathematical interspersed about the room crossing and recrossing in endless irregularity were innumerable benches and desks black ancient and time-worn piled desperately with much bethumbed books and so beseamed with initial letters names at full length grotesque figures and other multiplied efforts of the knife as to have entirely lost what little of original form might have been their portion in days long departed. A huge bucket with water stood at one extremity of the room, and a clock of stupendous dimensions at the other. Encompassed by the massy walls of this venerable academy, I passed, yet not in tedium or disgust, the years of the third lustrum of my life. The teeming brain of childhood requires no external world of incident to occupy or amuse it, and the apparently dismal monotony of a school was replete with more immense excitement than my riper youth was has derived from luxury or my full manhood from crime. Yet I must believe that my first mental development had in it much of the uncommon, even much of the outre, Upon mankind at large, the events of very early existence rarely leave in mature age any definite impression. All is gray shadow, a weak and irregular remembrance, an indistinct regathering of feeble pleasures and phantasmagoric pains. With me this is not so." In childhood I must have felt, with the energy of a man, what I now find stamped upon memory in lines as vivid, as deep, and as durable as the exergues uh, of the Carthaginian metals. Yet, in fact, in the fact of the world's view, how little was there to remember— in the morning's awakening, the nightly summons to bed, the connings, the recitations, the periodical half-holidays and perambulations, the playground with its broils, its pastimes, its intrigues, these by a mental sorcery long forgotten, were made to involve a wilderness of sensation, a world of rich incident, an universe of varied emotion of excitement, of the most passionate and spirit-stirring de In truth, the ardor, 
The enthusiasm and the imperiousness of my disposition soon rendered me a marked character among my schoolmates, and by slow but natural gradations gave me an ascendancy over all not greatly older than myself, over all with a single exception. This exception was found in the person of a scholar who, although no relation, bore the same Christian and surname as myself. A circumstance, in fact, little remarkable, for notwithstanding a noble descent, mine was of those one of those everyday appellations which seem, by prescriptive right, to have been, time out of mind, the common property of the mob. In this narrative, I have therefore designated myself as William Wilson, a fictitious title not very dissimilar to the real. My namesake alone, of those who in school phraseology constituted our set, presumed to compete with me in the studies of the class, and in sports and broils of the playground, to refuse implicit beliefs in my assertions and submission to my will, indeed to interfere with my arbitrary dictation in any respect whatsoever, if there is on earth a supreme and unqualified despotism. It is the despotism of a mastermind in boyhood over the less ener energetic spirits of its companions. Wilson's rebellion was to me a source of the greatest embarrassment, the more so as in spite of the bravado with which in public I made a point of treating him and his pretensions, I secretly felt that I feared him and could not help thinking the equally equality which he maintained so easily with myself a proof of his true superiority, since not to be overcome caused me a perpetual struggle. Yet this superiority, even this equality, was in truth acknowledged by no one but myself. Our associates, by some unaccountable blindness, seemed not even to suspect it. Indeed, his competition, his resistance, and especially his impertinent and dogged interference with my purposes were not more pointed than private. He appeared to be destitute alike of the ambition which urged, and of the passionate energy of mind which enabled me to excel. In his rivalry he might have been supposed actuated solely by a whimsical desire to thwart, astonish, or mortify myself, although there were times when I could not help observing, with a feeling made up of wonder, abasement, and pique, that he mingled with his injuries, his insults, or his contradictions, a certain most inappropriate and assuredly most unwelcome affectionateness of manner. I could only conceive this singular behavior to arise from a con consummate self-conceit assuming the vulgar airs of patronage and protection.
Perhaps it was this latter trait in Wilson's conduct, conjoined with our identity of name and the mere accident of our having entered the school upon the same day, which set afloat the notion that we were brothers among the senior classes in the academy. These do not usually inquire with much strictness into the affairs of their juniors. I have before said, or should have said, that Wilson was not, in a most remote degree, connected to my family. But assuredly, if we had been brothers, we must have been twins. For after leaving Dr. Bransby's, I casually learned that my namesake was born on the 19th of January, 1813. And this is a somewhat remarkable coincidence for the day is precisely that of my own nativity. It may seem strange that in spite of the continual anxiety occasioned me by the rivalry of Wilson and his intolerable spirit of contradiction, I could not bring myself to hate him altogether. We had, to be sure, nearly every day a quarrel in which, yielding me publicly the palm of victory, he, in some manner, contrived to make me feel that it was he who had deserved it. Yet, in a sense of pride on my part, and a veritable dignity on his own, kept us always upon what are called speaking terms. While, there were many points of strong congeniality in our tempers, operating to awake in me a sentiment which our position alone, perhaps, preventing from ripening into friendship. It is difficult indeed to define or even to describe my real feelings towards him. They formed a motley and heterogeneous admixture. Some Re, uh, some petulant animosity, which was not yet hatred, some esteem, more respect, much fear, with a world of uneasy curiosity. To the moralist, it would be necessary to say, in addition, that Wilson and myself were the most inseparable of companions." It was no doubt the anomalous state of affairs existing between us which turned all my attacks upon him, and there were many, either open or covert, into the channel of banter or practical joke, giving pain while assuming the aspect of mere fun, rather than into a more serious and determined hostility." but my endeavors in this head were by no means uniformly successful, even when my plans were the most wittily concocted. For my namesake had uh, much about him in character of that unassuming and quiet austerity which, while enjoying the poignancy of its own jokes, has no heel of Achilles in itself and absolutely refuses to be laughed at. I could not, indeed, but one vulnerable point. I could not find, indeed, but one vulnerable point, and that lying in the 
personal peculiarity arising perhaps from constitutional disease would have been spared by any antagonist less at his wit's end than myself. My rival had a weakness in fauchial or guttural organs, easy for me to say, which precluded him from raising his voice at any time above a very low whisper. Of this defect, I did not fail to take what poor advantage lay in my power. Wilson's retaliations in kind were many, and there was one form of his practical, excuse me, uh, ooh, wow, pardon me, Let's start that over. Wilson's retaliation in kind were many, and there was one form of his practical wit that disturbed me beyond measure. How his sagacity first discovered at all that so petty a thing would vex me is a question I never could solve. But having discovered, he habitually practiced the annoyance. I had always felt aversion to my uncourtly patronymic, and it's very common, if not plebeian phenomenon, uh, prenomen, that's a new word, The wor- this is a lot of new words to me, the words were venom in my ears, and when upon the day of my arrival a second William Wilson came also to the academy, I felt angry with him for bearing the name, and doubly disgusted with the name because a stranger bore it. Who would be the cause of its twofold repetition? Who would be constantly in my presence, and whose concerns in the ordinary routine of the school business must inevitably, on account of the detestable coincidence, be often confounded with my own? The feeling of vexation thus engendered grew grew stronger with every circumstance tending to show resemblance, moral or physical, between my rival and myself. I had not then discovered the remarkable fact that we were of the same age, but I saw that we were of the same height, and I perceived that we were even singularly alike in general contour of person and outline of feature. I was galled, too, by the rumor touching a relationship which had grown current in the upper forms in a word nothing could be nothing could more seriously disturb me although i scrupulously concealed such disturbance than any allusion to a similarity of mind person or condition existing between us but in truth I had no reason to believe that, with the exception of the matter of relationship and in the case of Wilson himself, this similarity had ever been made a subject of comment or even observed at all by our schoolfellows. That he observed it in all its bearings and as fixedly as I was apparent, but that he could discover in such circumstances so fruitful a field of annoyance can only be attributed, as I said before, to his more than ordinary penetration. His cue, which was too perfect and 
imitation of myself lay both in words and in actions, and most admirably did he play his part. My dress, it was an easy matter to copy. My gait and general manner were without difficulty appropriated. In spite of his constitutional defect, even my voice did not escape him. My louder tones were, of course, unattempted, but then the key was identical, and his singular whisper, it grew the very echo of my own. How greatly this most exquisite portraiture harassed me, for it could not justly be termed a caricature I will not now venture to describe. I had but one consolation in the fact that the imitation apparently was noticed by myself alone and that I had to endure only the knowing and strangely sarcastic smiles of my namesake himself, satisfied with having produced in my bosom the intended effect that he seemed to chuckle in secret over the sting he had inflicted, and he was characteristically disregarded, disregardful of the public applause which he with the uh, which the success of his witty endeavors might have so easily elicited, that the school indeed did not feel his design, perceive its accomplishments, and participate in his sneer was for many anxious months a riddle I could not resolve. Perhaps the gradation of his copy rendered it not readily perceptible, or more possibly, I owed my security to the masterly air of the copyist who, disdaining the letter, which in painting is all but all the obtuse can see, gave but the full spirit of his original for my individual contemplation and chagrin. I have more than once spoken of the disgusting air of patronage which he assumed toward me and of his frequent officious interference with my will. This interference often took the ungracious character of advice. Advice, not openly given, but hinted or insinuated. I received it with repugnance, which gained strength as I grew in years, yet at this distant day, let me, to, uh, let me do him the simple justice to acknowledge that I can recall no occasion when the suggestions of my rival were on the side of those errors or follies so usual to his immature age and seeming inexperience. This, that his moral sense at least, if not his general talents and worldly wisdom was far keener than my own and that I might today have been a better and thus a happier man had I less frequently rejected the counsels embodied in those meaning whispers which I then but too cordially hated and too bitterly despised. As, as it was, I at length grew 
restive in the extreme under his distasteful supervision and daily resented more and more deeply what I considered his intolerable arrogance. I have said that in the first years of our connection as schoolmates, my feelings in regard to him might have been easily ripened into friendship, but in the latter months of my residence at the academy, although in the intrusion of his ordinary manner had, beyond doubt, in some measure abated, my sentiments in nearly similar proportion partook very much of the positive hatred. Upon one occasion he saw this. I think, and afterward avoided or made a show of avoiding me. It was about the same period, if I remember aright, that in an altercation of violence with him, in which he was more than usually thrown off his guard, and spoke and acted with an openness of demeanor rather than foreign to his nature, I discovered, or fancied I discovered, in his accent, in his air, and general appearance, a something which first startled and then deeply interested me, by bringing to mind dim visions of my earliest infancy, wild, confused, and thronging memories of time when memory herself was yet unborn. I cannot better describe the sensation which oppressed me than by saying that I could with difficulty shake off the belief of my having been acquainted with the being who stood before me at some epoch very long ago, some point in the past even infinitely remote. The delusion, however, faded rapidly as it came, and I mention it all but to define the day of the last conversation I there held with my singular namesake, the huge old house with its countless subdivisions had Several large chambers communicating with each other where slept the greater number of the students. There were, however, as must necessarily happen in a building so awkwardly planned, many little nooks or recesses, and the odds and ends of the structure and these economic ingenuity of Dr. Bransby had also fitted up as dormitories, although being the merest closets, they were capable of accommodating but a single individual. One of these small apartments was occupied by Wilson. Pause. Let me see how much longer this story is. Uh, maybe I should have read it first, because this is... Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Why did I choose a goddamn whole book? Oh, okay. It's not too much longer. Okay. <laughs> Let's continue. One night, about the close of my fifth year at the school, and immediately after the altercation just mentioned... Finding everyone wrapped in sleep, I arose from bed and, lamp in hand, stole through the wilderness of narrow passages from my own bedroom to that of my rival. I had long been plotting one of those ill-natured pieces of practical wit at its expense, at his expense, in which I had hitherto been uniformly unsuccessful. It was my intention now to put my scheme in operation, and I resolved to to make him feel the whole extent of the malice which I uh, uh, malice with which I was imbued.
Having reached his closet, I noiselessly entered, leaving the lamp with a shade over it on the outside. I advanced a step and listened to the sound of his tranquil breathing, assured of his being asleep. I returned, took the light, and with it again approached the bed. Those curtains were around it, which, in the prosecution of my plan, I slowly and quietly withdrew. When the bright rays fell vividly upon the sleeper, and my eyes at the same in that moment upon his countenance, I looked, and a numbness, an iciness of feeling instantly pervaded my frame. My breast heaved, my knees tottered, my whole spirit became possessed with an objectless yet intolerable horror. Gasping for breath, I lowered the lamp in still nearer proximity to his face. Were these, these the lineaments of William Wilson? I saw indeed that they were his, but I shook as if with a fit of the og in fancying they were not. What was there about him so to, to, to confound me in this manner? I, I gazed with while my brain reeled with a multitude of incoherent thoughts. Not thus he appeared, assuredly, assuredly not thus, in the vivacity of his waking hours. The same name, the same contour of person the same day of arrival at the academy, and then his dogged and meaningless imitation of my gait, my voice, my habits, and my manner, was it in truth within the bounds of human possibility that what I now saw was the result merely of the habitual practice of his sarcastic imitation? Awe-stricken, and with a creeping shudder, I extinguished the lamp, passed silently from the chamber and left, at once, the halls of that old academy, never to enter them again. After a lapse of some months spent at home in mere idleness, I found myself a student at Eton. The brief interval had been sufficient to enfeeble my remembrance of the days at Dr. Bransby's, or at least to effect a material change in the nature of the feelings with which I remembered them. The truth, the tragedy of the drama was no more. I could now find room to doubt the evidence of my senses, and seldom called up the subject at all but with wonder at the extent of human credulity, and a smile at the vivid force of the imagination which I hereditarily possess. Neither was this species of skepticism likely to be diminished by the character of life I led at Eton, the vortex of thoughtless folly into which I there so immediately and so recklessly plunged, washed away all but the froth of my past hours, engulfed at once every solid or serious impression, and left to memory only the various levities of a former existence. I do not wish, however, to trace the course of my miserable prolificacy here, the profligacy which set at defiance the laws, while it eluded the vigilance of institution. Three years of folly passed without profit had but given me rooted habits of vice, and added in some un some 
what unusual degree to my bodily stature, when after a week of soulless dissipation, I invited a small party of the most dissolent students to a secret carousal in my chambers. We met at a late hour in the night, for our debaucheries were to be faithfully protracted until morning. The wine flowed freely, and there were not wanting uh, other, any, and perhaps any more dangerous seductions, so that the gray dawn had already faintly appeared in the east while our delirious extravagance was at its height. Madly flushed with cards and intoxication, I was in the act of insisting upon a toast of more than wanted profanity, then my attention was suddenly diverted by the violent, although partial, unclosing of the door of the apartment, and by the eager voice of a servant from without. He said at some person, apparently in great haste, demanding to speak with me, in the hall. Wildly excited with wine, the unexpected interruption rather delighted than surprised me. I staggered forward at once, and a few steps brought me to the vestibule of the building. In this low and small room there hung no lamps, and now no light at all was admitted save that of the exceedingly feeble dawn, which made its way through the semicircular window. As I put my foot over the threshold, I became aware of a figure of a youth about my own height and habited in a white cashmere, or is that supposed to be cashmere? Yeah, cashmere, morning frock, cut in the novel fashion of one I myself wore at the moment. This the faint light enabled me to perceive, but the features of his face I could not distinguish. Upon my entering, he strode hurriedly up to me and seizing me by the arm with a gesture of petulant impatience, whispered the words, William Wilson, in my ear. I grew perfectly sober in an instant. There was that... Uh, in the manner of the stranger, and in the tremulous shake of his uplifted finger, as he held it between my eyes in the light which filled me with unqualified amazement. But it was not this which had so violently moved me, it was the pregnancy of solemn admonition in the singular, low, hissing utterance, and above all, it was the character, the tone, the key." of those few simple and familiar yet whispered similar syllables which came with a thousand thronging memories of bygone days and struck upon my soul with the shock of galvanic batteries ere i could recover the use of my sense he was gone Although this was, although this event failed not of a vivid effect of upon my disordered imagination, yet was in evanescent as vivid. For some weeks, indeed, I busied myself in earnest enquiry, or perhaps was uh, wrapped in a cloud of morbid speculation. I did not pretend to disguise from my perception the 
identity of this singular individual who thus preservingly, uh, perseveringly interfered with my affairs and harassed me with his insinuated counsel. But who was this Wilson, and whence came he, and what were his purposes? Upon neither of these points could I be satisfied, merely ascertaining in regard to him that a sudden accident in his family had caused his removal from Dr. Bransby's academy on the afternoon of the day in which I myself had eloped. But in brief, in a brief period, I ceased to think upon the subject, my attention being all absorbed in a contemplated departure for Oxford. Thither I soon went, the un uncalculating vanity of my parents furnishing me with an outfit and annual establishment which would enable me to indulge at will in the luxury already so dear to my heart, to vie in profuseness of expenditure with the haughtiest heirs of the wealthiest earldoms in Great Britain." Excited by such appliances to vice, my constitutional temperament broke forth with a redoubled ardor, and I spurned, and I spurned even the common restraints of decency in the mad, infatuated eyes of my revels. But it were absurd to pause in the detail of my extravagance. Let it suffice that among these spendthrifts I outherited Herod, and that, giving the name to a multitude of novel follies, I added no brief appendix to the long catalogue of vices then unusual in the most dissolute university of Europe. I could hardly be credited, however, that I had, even here, so utterly fallen from the gentlemanly estate as to seek acquaintance with the vilest arts of the gambler by profession, and, having become an adept in his despicable, despicable science to practice it habitually as a means of increasing my already enormous income, at the expense of the weak-minded among my fellow collegians." Such, nevertheless, was the fact, and the very enormity of this offense against all manly and honorable sentiment proved beyond doubt the main, if not the sole reason of the impunity with which I was committed, who indeed among my most abandoned associates would not rather have disputed the clearest evidence of his senses than have suspected of such courses the gay, the frank, the generous William Wilson, the noblest and most liberal commoner at Oxford, him whose follies, said his parasites, were but the follies of youth and unbridled fancy, whose errors but unimitable whim, whose dark vices but careless and dashing extravagance i had been now two years successfully busied in this way when there came to the university a young parvenu nobleman glending rich said reported as herodotus atticus his riches too as easily acquired i soon found him of weak intellect and of course marked marked him as a fitting subject for my skill i frequently engaged him in play and contrived with a gambler's unusual or 
Oh my God, I'm running out of breath. With a gambler's usual art to let him win considerable sums, the more effectually to entangle him in my snares. At length, my schemes being riped, I met him with full intention that this meeting should be final and decisive at the chambers of a fellow commoner, Mr. Preston, equally intimate with both, but who, to do him justice, entertained not even a remote suspicion of my design. To give this, uh, to give to this a better coloring, I had contrived, uh, I, I had contrived to have assembled a party of some eight or ten, and was thus solicitously careful uh, that the introduction of the cards should appear accidental and originate in the proposal of my contemplated dupe himself. To be brief, upon a vile topic, none of these low finesse was omitted, so customarily upon similar occasions that it was just a matter of wonder how any are still found so besotted as to fall its victim. Okay, Jesus Christ, this is way longer than I thought it was going to be. Uh, uh, well, Jesus Christ, it's been over an hour right now. I really need to pee. So I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this episode up. Um, maybe I should have read that beforehand. Oh man, that story is way longer than I expected it, but uh, apparently it does get a little fucking weird at the end. So I'm going to continue reading this in the bonus episodes. So if you want to hear the rest of the story of William Wilson, uh, Become a subscriber at patreon.com slash that thing with James. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you stick around to hear the rest of the story. Happy Halloween.